We arrived at the same time as Snapper to the League's headquarters, with a meeting already in full swing. Luckily for the three of us, there was cake and good conversation waiting. A bit of catch-up was needed, so we sat back and listened to the JLA describe their first foray into Earth 2. Hi, my name is John. And I'm Matthew. And we are the DC Detectives. It is our job to go back through the annals of DC Comics history and chronicle the evolution of all your favorite heroes from start to every reversible finish. We have a lot to unpack in this. <laughs> yeah. And first, for, first off, first off, I want to say our bad. Here's the thing. When you do a podcast about chronologically reading multiple titles in a row of a company at the same time, you kind of screw up your timing. And I know we have notes. I know we have notes. I have books of notes. I know that we have them. I was just so excited to get to these stories that I forgot that we kind of just didn't do a year's worth of content for everyone. So when we go back and start covering the members of the League and everybody else, we're going to have to go from 62 to 64. Because we're going to end uh, in December 1963 in this episode. So we kind of didn't do a 1963's coverage with this. Oh, well. Forgive us our error. You get more content. Boo-hoo, I promise that the people of 1963 will survive. Yes, they will survive. They probably already have, but also we'll get to them eventually. Um, but for right now, we're going to look exclusively at JLA number 17 to JLA number 24, which is from February 1963 to December 1963. All these stories are written by Gardner Fox. Hooray, Gardner, getting that cash money. Um, and I'm going to try and do these a little bit, f- not much faster, but as fast as I can so that we get to the giant, all important, this will change comics for the rest of history, uh, two part storyline mm-hmm. that will happen kind of in the middle of our coverage here. Um, we're going to start our coverage at JLA number 17, February 1963. Uh, this is a character from Adam Strange that we covered at one point in Mystery in Space. This is the Tornado Tyrant, which is a sentient tornado creature that has psychic abilities. It's a reality warper of sorts. Um, again, we covered this in an Adam Strange comic, uh, I want to say in 1961, 1962. So if you want to go back to those episodes and listen to those, we talk about him fighting a sentient tornado at one point. Um, the long and short of it is this sentient tornado has spent time since being defeated learning about right and justice and virtue and has decided not to be a bad guy anymore so it tries to emulate the justice league of america and it creates its own like world and fake justice league and solves problems on this world as the fake justice league but in doing so also creates a an evil duplicate of itself it's very it's very pop. It's very for the purpose of plot here. Suffice it to say, there's a fake Justice League that's fighting an evil Tornado Tyrant, both of which have been created by the good Tornado Tyrant, and he has to go hypothetically suggest what's going on on this planet to the real Justice League to learn how to beat his evil alter ego. There's a lot of steps to confronting your inner demons here, and I just say that the Tornado Tyrant should just go to therapy. But, uh... That is the that is JLA number 17. JLA number 18, March 1963. The League gets shrunk into the micro-universe that the Atom normally goes to, and when they arrive on a small planet in the micro-universe, they are confronted by three automaton robots that are basically guardians for this planet. Unfortunately, they are powered by a, a battery source that is killing the inhabitants of the planet very slowly, so they are asking the Justice League to defeat them. And they tell them, you know, no one's ever been able to defeat us, and you won't be able to, but 
if anyone can try it's you and one by one the justice league members fail uh and they realize actually batman realizes this that something on this planet is essentially making reverse psychology reality so by being told that they cannot do these things they are in effect unable to actually do them superman can't bend bars the flash can't outrun one of the robots green lantern can't its constructs don't work very well um so they realize they need to get someone who has not been affected by the reverse psychology you know reality warping and tell them that they can beat these monsters or these robots and they decide on snapper car now i gotta say of all your second stringers and sixth men that you've got available to you, not the elongated man, not the challengers of the unknown, <laughs> you're going to pick fucking Snapper Carr, the high school senior that hangs out with you guys, who tags along and records your missions. And they go, Snapper, we need you to come to the micro universe to beat up these robots. Trust us, it's not a weird thing that none of us can do this. And he does, because he's not hindered by the reverse psychology reality warping and snapper car saves the day which is incredible especially like honestly the thing that gets me isn't that he's the one they go to it's that i think this is the only story in here that he has any real part in like not just as a framing device but is like actually a participant because it yeah, felt I, like in, yeah. in the first couple i guess the first 16 issues of this like he was all over the place and then suddenly like recently he's just not been a primary character it's it's more hit it's more that this is the aberration that stands out to me rather than that he is the one they go to yeah and it's it's just very funny that they they have brought him back in such a fashion um but don't worry everybody there's a reason snapper has not been around it's because he's been studying for his college exams which is a real thing they talk about so snapper (laughs) is at least a junior or senior in high school i'm gonna say senior in high school uh, we're going to move to JLA number 19, May 1963. Dr. Destiny, do you remember him? Don't worry, nobody else does. He was a JLA villain from back when we first started our coverage. I believe he impersonated Green Lantern at one point. Um, Dr. Destiny creates these dream versions of the JLA that are more powerful than the actual JLA, and they defeat the JLA and um, begin to commit crimes in their name so that the planet gets really pissed off at the League. And... Um, Gene Loring, the Adams girlfriend, who is a lawyer, represents them in a court of law, and the Adams like Gene, I need you to tell them that we're gonna we're gonna exile ourselves until we can prove our innocence. And she goes, Okay, that's a very weird thing to tell your lawyer, but sure. And she goes to the judge, and the judge is like, I don't see how that could be a problem, because like what jail could we possibly create that would hold you all? And they fly into space and they start kind of piecing together the puzzle. And they realize the only way that they're gonna get back on the planet is in their civilian garb and defeat these imposters that way and then track down who created them. So for the first time ever, the JLA members, aside from Clark and Bruce, who already know who each other are, reveal their secret identities to each other. And they all kind of have this lovely meet and greet in the spaceship that Superman constructed for them, which is kind of adorable and fun. And then they realize that Aquaman's the odd man out who doesn't have a secret identity. And so they're like, you're going to have to stay on the on the spaceship Aquaman until we figure this out. So they're sans Aquaman during these fights. Um, and then they find Dr. Destiny and they defeat him. And then Superman goes, well, now that we all know our secret identities, it's time to erase our minds because 
any of us giving up this information could be, you know, dangerous. And I'm like, don't you think that maybe these are the people that should know who you are? Look how well it's worked out for you and Bruce. But, you know, everyone learns everybody's identities and then Superman erases them, presumably consensually. Uh, It's never spoken of again. (laughs) We never we never talk about that ever again. Justice League number 20, June 1963. The JLA thinks that they have failed three missions on a variety of different planets to save the inhabitants. Um, And they all kind of start moping back to Earth where a giant robot is there that is seemingly helping people from natural catastrophes. What they really find out is that the machines that they've been stopping are actually for each other's planets. So while they stop the machine and the people on the planet don't get you know freed or unharmed or whatever somewhere else there's they're preventing a, a tragedy over there and when they eventually realize this they're like oh we're not such screw-ups anyway and then they and then upon closer inspection of the giant robot they find out it's absorbing radiation for some sort of metallic alien that superman must then throw into space and a very sort of like i don't know what to do with this giant robot i made i'm just gonna make him evil suddenly way to go gardner fox <laughs> like it was n- neither of these two stories are connected in any way other than I think the alien that is controlling the giant robot is the alien that also did the bad things on the planets that they're saving. I forgot there wasn't much of a linkage, but yeah, that... And I think that's the only tie-in. It just happens to be two stories that are happening at the same time. It's very stupid. Um, Here we go, though. Here's what everybody's been waiting for. JLA number 21 and JLA number 22, August to September 1963. Crisis on Earth 1 and Crisis on Earth 2. So... Felix Faust, Dr. Alchemy, and Kronos, JLA villains, have teamed up with the Fiddler, the Wizard, and Icicle, JSA enemies. So that's the Justice League of America and the Justice Society of America. The JSA was the Golden Age version of the JLA. And what we find out is when the Fiddler, the Wizard, and Icicle are on their sort of chain gang duty of, you know, breaking rocks and picking up litter like you do in the 1960s when you're in jail they use the fiddler's violin to vibrate their frequency such that they actually go to earth one they accidentally do it they realize while they're there um and they're about to be arrested they're in trouble and it just so happens that chronos felix faust and dr alchemy were also going to rob the place that they're at and they save the three other villains from being arrested and they all go like oh wow we're from different earths this is cool let's team up and Let's defeat our enemies and then switch worlds because your enemies don't know how to beat us and our enemies don't know how to beat you. So you guys can just commit crimes on our world and we'll go commit crimes in your world and it'll be cool. In a, in a fairly, what I would think that they believe is an idiot proof plan, which hinges entirely upon, which they, which they do, trapping both Jay Garrick and Barry Allen. Because they realize that the Flashes are the only two that could probably figure this out. So luring both Jay Garrick and Barry Allen to a location, they trap them both in sort of like an out-of-dimensional, outer-dimensional prison sort of a thing. And then they just swap worlds. Um, But kind of before that, like, while Felix Faust and the JLA villains are kind of just committing crimes and the JSA villains are committing crimes, we get sort of a roll call of who's on the JLA and the JSA. So the JLA has Green Arrow... Green Lantern, Aquaman, The Atom, Wonder Woman, Batman, Superman, and The Flash, and Martian Manhunter. Conversely, the JSA roll call is um, Black Canary, Our Man, The Atom, Hawkman, 
Dr. Fate, Green Lantern, and uh, The Flash. So, Black Canary, go back and listen to our Golden Age coverage of Black Canary. This is Laurel Lance, who is this kind of crime fighter woman who doesn't really have the voice powers that we know and love, but she's just sort of a problem solver gal. Uh, our man is Rex Tyler, the guy who takes the what is effectively a, a one-hour steroid that gives him superpowers. Um, the Atom is that dude who's just strong. He doesn't shrink at all. And then there's Hawkman, which is the Golden Age Hawkman. So this is Carter Hall, not Katar Hull, like we have on Earth-1, who is an alien. This is the reincarnated prince, Egyptian prince Hawkman. And it's also worth noting, at this point, there may have been a costume change towards the end of the Golden Age or something because yes. he he doesn't have the disturbing hawk head. Yeah, it is not that terrifying Hotline Miami mask. <laughs> it um, really was quite disconcerting. Yeah, uh, Dr. Fate, uh, the Lord of Order, who is the uh, Kent Nelson, the son of the archaeologist who is now this what is effectively the sorcerer supreme of our of earth 2 and alan scott the green lantern who has the magic green lantern we talked about jay garrick in the last flash episode that we did but it's jay garrick the uh scientist who was studying hard water heavy water Mm -hmm. it doesn't really matter it was water and he gets flash powers so the jsa and the jla face their respective villains and lose then those villains disappear and they swap worlds being criminals, they get antsy and decide that they want to steal. So they decide and disguise themselves as essentially the JSA villains disguise themselves as the JLA villains to beat the JLA for the JLA villains as kind of a gift. Like, hey guys, we got rid of your dude, so now you can come back to your world and we can all be kings in, of crime or whatever. Um, things don't really work out as the Green Lanterns are like, wow, the Flashes are gone. We should probably find them. And then everyone kind of pairs off into respective teams and they start to get the upper hand on all the villains. When the Green Lanterns free the Flashes from their interdimensional prison, which causes a trap to trigger that puts them all in an interdimensional prison. So now everybody is trapped. They eventually figure their way out of it via the Green Lanterns again, and they return to their Earth, and they just kick the ever-loving crap out of these six guys. And it's mm-hmm. an, it's the first time we've seen, like, straight-up team fight splash pages. Yeah, that's Like, we've seen, we've seen team fight panels where, like, two people are doing superpowers, but these are, like, full pages of a white background of team up fights against these six guys. And it's really cool. And we'll put those up in the, on the Instagram. Cause it's, it's, it's a, it's a great sequence of pages. Um, once they're done, everyone's like, Hey, this was really cool. We should always hang out and talk to each other again. Cause this is neat that we have friends and, and, you know, cavalry, not unlike, you know, Adam strange or the elongated man or the challengers of the unknown or any of those other folks that we hang out with. <laughs> That we keep forgetting to call when shit gets weird. We're just going to go to a different dimension and get an entirely new Justice League. But this is the first time that we've seen, firstly, the naming of the two Earths. Earth 1 is Justice League of America. Earth 2 is Justice Society of America. Essentially think of it as Silver Age is Earth 1, Golden Age is Earth 2. 
they hint at an Earth 3. Because that is where the villains try to escape to before the heroes get to them. So now we have technically three Earth dimensions. So the universe, so the multiverse is beginning to flesh itself out more and more and more. Speaking of terminology, there's one other one that I want to call out here because I didn't notice it at first and it fascinated me. This is the root also of the crisis terminology because yes. the two stories are crisis on earth one and crisis on earth two uh and years later we're going to get crisis on infinite earths and then uh what was it infinite crisis final crisis really that's that is the terminology that they lean on and while most of the more modern usages are hearkening back specifically to crisis on infinite earths because that was such a seminal work that one itself has its roots here in Crisis on Earth 1. Yes. Um, for those of you Marvel fans, it is the equivalent of the war tagline. Civil War, Infinity War, Secret War. That is Marvel's crisis. It is is war. So that's how you denote a large company-spanning event. Um, speaking of Infinite Crisis, they are going to be doing that on the CW. Oh. Um yeah, so look out for that. That's going to be on there. Brandon Routh is coming back to be Superman. Oh, um, that's right. Even though he plays the Atom, they're going to have him also play as Superman. <laughs> and I, there's there's rumors, I think, of Tom Welling from Smallville coming back to play Superman. Um, Linda Carter, the old Wonder Woman, is rumored to come back. And Kevin Conroy, the voice of the animated series Batman, has also been cast as a live-action Batman. And I'm hoping he is Batman Beyond Batman. Huh. I hope he's old Bruce from Batman Beyond. God, that would but, be cool. I never watched that show, but I always liked the oh, idea. So good. Yeah. Um, anyway, if you're curious at what Crisis on Infinite Earths is or what a crisis level thing would be for television, DC is doing it on their TV shows on the CW. But those are the, those are the biggest issues that we're covering. We're going to move on to JLA number 23, November 1963. Um, this is actually kind of a big deal. Queen B is a big villain for you're actually familiar with her name from Young Justice. She's also kind of shows up every now and then. She's just a big villain, but her name is Zazala, and Queen B is essentially an alien who uses radiation to get people to do what she wants. She gets the Justice League to find these vials of immortality for her, and she says, "All right, great, thanks so much. I order you to remain on Earth until I leave your solar system." And as they do that, they go like, well, she's going to be out there for a while and maybe not ever get the immortality she wants because Green Lantern made the bottles indestructible and Martian Manhunter made them unopenable by welding their <laughs> their tops onto. So she's got these unbreakable, unopenable invincibility bottles that she can't have. And now that she's out of the solar system, we don't know where she is. But, you know, we kind of triumphed. Loopholes. And the final issue we're going to cover is JLA number 24, December 1963. Um, P.S. Snapper Carr passes college exams. Hooray, Snapper. Uh, he gets cake. However, also in the story, Kanjar Rowe is back. You might remember Kanjar Rowe is the guy who enslaved the Justice League to fight those other warlords from the different planets on a giant, like, Viking rowboat in space. Uh, we kind of talk about that in the earlier coverage. Um there's also an Adam Strange story that we're going to talk about where he goes to Ran and gets imprisoned there, which is how the Justice League meets Adam Strange. Um, but we're going to cover that in Mystery in Space. 
But what you need to know is that he currently he's imprisoned on Ran. And while he's on Ran, some radiation hits him and he suddenly knows everything? Question mark. Um, he's able to create auras. And in doing so, he makes an aura of himself, which is kind of like a duplicate, and then creates an aura version of Earth and an aura version of the Justice League so that he could steal the real Earth but put the real Justice League on the fake Earth. And once they realize they're on a fake planet, they're like, hmm, that's weird. And Adam Strange is like, hey guys, maybe you should come and talk to Kanjar Rowe because his the guy in his cell keeps saying he's not Kanjar Rowe and he keeps saying that like he's an aura duplicate. And they're like, this sounds fishy. They go to the cell. Kanjar Rowe's like, yeah, um, I'm an aura duplicate of the original Kanjar Rowe. He said he was going to steal your planet. You should go get him and bring him here because I'm pissed off that he made me sit in jail for him. And so they do in like two pages and they bring him back to Ran and now he's stuck in a cell with his aura duplicate who's like, you're a jerk. And he's like, why did you rat on me? You're part of me. And he's like, well, you left me in a cell. And that's the last story that we're going to cover. It was a very abrupt uh, end to that story. Yeah, it was, a, it was a lot of work selling the aura duplicates of the Justice League for no real payoff. Yep. Um, so again, the biggest thing to come out of our coverage today is Crisis on Earth 1 and Crisis on Earth 2. We kind of, a little scatterbrain did it, but essentially, again, six villains, three from Earth 1, three from Earth 2, team up to switch Earths and commit crimes on each other's Earths because the heroes on those Earths aren't familiar with them. They get greedy the heroes contact each other via a magic crystal ball that Merlin gave them. I forgot to mention that um, because they don't have the flashes with them. So the magic crystal ball that Merlin gave them from a previous adventure um, brings the Justice Society of America to Earth One and they all team up. There's a there's some name dropping in the JSA pages where they mention that Dr. Midnight, the Sandman, and Wonder Woman would be there. But since the JSA is a rotating membership and roster of seven people, those three are not involved right now. And that is why we don't see Wonder Woman meeting Golden Age Wonder Woman. They do not mention Batman or Superman. Mm-hmm. Again, this kind of supports the theory that something has happened to those two characters. There's a reason they're not around. And also, perhaps, they're just like, we don't know what to do with these guys because we never actually phased them into a new version of their lives. Yeah. So we're just not going to talk about the fact that we just kept the comics going and updated the world around them, as opposed to clean slate, let's restart. So, obviously, Gardner Fox is pulling every trick out of his hat to make this work. Honestly, it lands pretty well. It's a solid comic for the type of comics that he's doing. He pulls a lot from other um, volumes, or rather other magazines, and doing like, remember in JLA number this, or remember in Flash number whatever, or, you know, Adam Strange number whatever. So you know he's at least reading the product and doing his best to try and pull from those things so that it doesn't look like, okay, the JLA is its own thing. It does not touch the other, you know, the other books. What I find really interesting, though, is how hard he worked to really pull it off he had to make sure that the flashes 
were captured, so they couldn't just solve everything by running between the dimensions. The Green Lanterns had to be looking for the Flashes, because otherwise they probably would have beaten the bad guys. Also, again, the Green Lanterns and the Flashes are paired off. Mm -hmm. The two versions of the characters that are completely 100% different, but with similar theming, are the ones that are removed from these storylines. He spends a lot of time explaining what's going on, giving you background, making you understand how this works, which I appreciate. Was it necessary? It's not necessary for us, contemporary readers, but for the 1960s audience who were seeing Golden Age characters again for the first time and who aren't really familiar with dimension hopping, if they hadn't been reading The Flash really needed that level of time to explain. That's why this was a two-part story, in my mind at least. Because he had to explain how this happened so that he could leave on the cliffhanger that, oh my god, everybody's where are the flashes and oh, it's the different bad guys from a different world and they operate in a different way and the heroes aren't going to know how to fight them. Good cliffhanger. Good story beats. Interesting that it's over two pages, or rather two issues. Could have very easily been more, but he kept the characters together. Keeping the villains all together made it easy to make this only two stories. So, honestly, it was really cool to see. I really liked these two stories. Again, they weren't amazing, but it was like, these are good. This is a good way to do this, and I'm happy that these were as put together as they were. But you could tell there was a lot of planning. I think that um, does it for my coverage. I've got a decent number of notes, and... Most of them are expansions on sort of what we've talked about. Uh, one of the things that you mentioned about how Gardner Fox was writing these stories was that he was very intentionally calling back to a lot of things, pulling things in from other stories. Uh, there were a lot of references of this character showed up in a previous issue of JLA or Adam Strange, etc., etc. Uh, the epitome of that might be the story of how Kanjar Rowe ended up in the jail. Uh, but I don't know because I actually didn't look at, I didn't read that one, but I did look at number 23, uh, issue 23 of JLA ended with the Adam explaining an adventure that he had against Dr. Light that had kept him away from the main story uh, and referenced Adam number eight, where that adventure not just happened, but it was clear that this was an instance where I believe it was Gardner Fox writing the Adam story was writing it, knowing what was also going to be written in JLA number 23. It wasn't an instance where something happened in the past and then, oh, I'm going to pull that forward. It was being co-written isn't the right word, but written concurrently written concurrently yes and written intentionally in that way because uh, throughout the throughout the atom issue there are bits where it's like why didn't the jla show up as fast as the villain expected uh and then in jla 23 there are bits where the jla is wondering like where's the atom what's going on here uh and the scenes that happen at the end of each issue uh, where they do wind up meeting up. Snapper Carr's like, I want to hear both your stories. Uh, those bits are shared. Um, so from that perspective, were 
not just getting more references to the past, we're actively getting the sense of a a co-temporal shared universe. And the other bit that's sort of reinforcing that, I guess a little more just in general, the idea that Gardner Fox is pulling from other stories to uh, to build that shared universe. I did a quick look at how many references to previous stories there were. Like usually this was asterisk and find out more or this happened in Adam number eight. Uh, and there are a couple stories that are that had five re- of those references out. Uh, a couple issues that had zero, but on average, it was two and a quarter references out per issue that we covered. Uh, and comparatively, uh, looking at issues 14 to 16, there was one issue that had five and the rest were zeros. So it went from averaging about 1.6 references out per story to uh, being 2.25. And honestly, more consistently having references out. And it's interesting to me, too, because I think the majority of the the issues that we encounter that have references like that are JLA. Yes. We don't see a lot of references in, like, Superman that do that. Green Lantern does. And Flash does. But um, we don't really see that too much in, like, Wonder Woman or Martian Manhunter it's primarily the major silver age properties. Mm -hmm. And I wonder what that reason is. I wonder if it's because those are both John Broom properties and he's working really hard to get you to remember. And maybe Gardner Fox saw that and he was like, Oh, that's a good idea. So I actually have a different angle on it. And I wonder if this is the case. Uh, I wonder if it's pulling from everything that's under the Julius Schwartz umbrella. Mm. Yeah, I wonder if Schwartz was like, "You need to do this because people aren't going to know what you're doing." <laughs> what if? Well, like yeah. he might he might genuinely be like, every comic is everyone's first could be anyone's first comic. So if you bring someone forward from a previous issue, you have to reference it. You have to cite it, which is why X Men does the as as fun as Danger Room cold opens are for X Men, where you see everybody's powers and you see the dynamic of the team. That is way too repetitive mm-hmm. because you're going to get bored of that because you're going to be like, these are pages that you could have done story on instead of reminding someone who's reading X-Men number 150, who everyone is with JLA. It's like, this has been going for almost like two years now, two, three, four years. I feel like if it's a villain that has appeared in JLA, you don't have to do it. But if it's a villain that's appeared in anyone else's story, like in Flash Green Lantern, you should do it. But if it's a, if it's part of the JLA continuity, you really sh- you don't have to, in my opinion. The one other bit that I'll throw out there is that the one story we have that's the two-parter, uh, the Crisis on Earth 1 and Earth 2, uh, the second part of that opens with a text page. Uh, it's... Yeah. Like, I think about that first page of modern comics and at least the way I think of it, it tends to be attribution of and credits of who was working on it is a fair chunk of that page. And then like six 
head bubbles, and then two or three sentences of what's happened in the past. Here, it's just a block of text. It's basically from the top, like, fifth of the way down from the top of the page to a fifth of the way from the bottom. Uh, And everything in between is just text. It's very much previously on Dragon Ball Z, but written. Yes. You know, it's it's the script of any, like, previously on Arrow or previously on Star Trek Voyager. Mm-hmm. It's just the script of that with the heads of everyone who appeared in it. And you're like, that's a lot of reading yep. in a visual medium. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The other big thing, and it's actually everything comes back to Dragon Ball Z with us. Uh, I even have one more reference uh, beyond this one, but excellent. One of the things that bugged me most, especially about Dragon Ball Super, just because that was where I noticed it the most was they had a thing where every single character in a scene would take a moment to react. It wouldn't be a shared like gasp. It would be, Oh, Oh, huh, 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 huh. <laughs> yeah. That those cuts and not like fast cuts either. Like it would take a while. My friends, that's basically what we've got here because the majority of the stories that we covered had multiple pages of every individual JLA member having usually like trying something and failing it's either usually it's either like the inciting incident of the story where oh the the villains show up and they've got like this superhero tries to take them on and here's this fish confusion ray or something uh and then a different thing for each character so instead of like the initial threat being posed to everyone all at once it's being posed to each character individually for several panels. Um, Alternatively, it can happen later on where there's the initial attempt to overcome the villain and we see each hero try and fail. What this ultimately means is four and a half pages on average of the individual characters doing a thing. And I'm not talking about team fights unless it's like kind of the DBZ thing of one person does a thing at a time. And it's not like, oh, I did this and then I need to be saved by my buddy. It's like individually running at the wall and then getting hit and bouncing back. And then the next person tries. It averages four and a half pages per issue. And these are 24 odd page issues. The last issue that we cover is 16 pages of that. Yeah. Blows my mind. It hurts. It hurts. This is not... uh, Okay, I'm going to make a grandiose hyperbolic statement that isn't actually true, but it certainly is how it feels at points. This isn't a team book. It is an individual book that has a team up at the end. I can see that perception and that take on it. And for the record, uh, again, looking at the three issues before we covered, 14 to 16... One issue did four pages of this, and the rest were zeros, so it averages out to one and a third pages. Like, I don't know what changed backstage, but something changed, and I'm inclined to... It, it is, I want to be clear, it's also not to the benefit of the stories. By and large, the cool... The gimmicks and, like, 
the the things that happen in these like character by character by character moments are not usually that interesting. Occasionally it'll be like, okay, yeah, that was kind of imaginative, but by and large it it feels like it's just taking up space. There is a lot of stuff that's done for what appears to be the sake of being dramatic. Yes. And again, these are fun. They're not great, but they're fun. And they're fun, I think, because of what they mean for the world of comics, not because they're great stories. These aren't fun like Flash and Green Lantern comics Mm -hmm. are fun. These are fun because they're like, wow, this is different. And wow, look at what you're trying. If this hadn't had the multiverse uh, mini arc, this would have been eminently forgettable for me. Yeah. Uh, I promised one more DBZ reference. Uh, There's a bit, I don't remember which issue, but there's a bit where all of the other leaguers are like pooling their willpower to help power uh, Green Lantern's ring. It's just like, I'm a sucker for that kind of family Kamehameha moment. Yeah. Too bad that's not how that works. (laughs) Yeah. Sorry. (laughs) Green Lantern purist over here going, that's not how the ring works. Uh, but yeah, sure. No, I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad Hal made them all feel like they were important. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, he's like, I got to do all this shit myself. Yeah, whatever makes you guys feel better. <laughs> um, the tornado creature that was yeah, originally... The tornado tyrant. Yep. Uh, the tornado tyrant uh, who winds up deciding to side, on, side with good. Uh, it's interest. It's a little interesting because... It's a very kid playing at Justice League kind of thing um, where it creates the Justice League because it wants it's tired of losing and evil always loses. So it decides to be good and it decides to be the Justice League in every way, shape or form to be the epitome of good, uh, which is a little meh on its own. But what's interesting is that the specific verbiage that it uses uh, talking about how good always wins and evil always loses uh, actually is not legally mandated, but mandated by the comics code. Uh, This is one of the lines from the original like comics code, which I think this particular like statute was still in effect uh, at the time that this story came out. Uh, in every instance, good shall triumph over evil and the criminal punished for his misdeeds. Now, that word criminal specifically is important here because the comics code was largely a response to the popularity of uh, cops and robbers uh, stories, horror stories, etc. And there's a lot of respect for cops and authority embedded in the comics code at this point because it it wasn't aimed at superhero stories it was aimed at these other genres uh it's just that then the superhero stories also had to follow the rules uh and it it was interesting to see like the rules of kayfabe called out kind of yeah uh put on the page that's the better word for it yeah it's having having it so explicitly shown before us that like this is how the way of the world is now was a little like ooh, fourth wall yep from that same issue, there's a panel of Batman, and he's just gotten like sopping wet. Uh, someone splashed him with stuff. The the evil tornado dude uh, splashed Batman with a bunch <laughs> yeah. of water, and his ears are drooping. Yeah, it, he looks like a pug. 
It's very weird. Yeah. He looks like Batmite. Yeah. Yeah. Good call. Which we haven't gotten to yet, but Batmite is the Mr. Mixiospitalic equivalent for Batman. He's he's Batman's fifth dimensional imp that he deals with, if I'm not mistaken, Um, Mm -hmm. who is basically a tiny little man dressed like Batman, who is his like ultimate fan. And um, he's got little droopy Batman ears and Batman's ears in that panel do look very Batmite. And at this time, there are a lot of stories of Batman and Superman uh, being around and then Batmite and Mr. Mixispitalik, uh, like in some way, both showing up and either both trying to help their respective dudes or having like a competition of which one is cooler. So we've got plenty of Batmite available. It's just that we haven't run through it yet. Yeah, we'll we'll eventually get there. Oh yeah, I I look forward to it. Yeah, <laughs> every that's gonna be fun. Every time that. <laughs> Every time I'm reading the comics and Rebecca looks over and sees I'm reading something with Mr. Mr. Mixie Spitalik uh, in it. And she's like, is that, is that the idiot guy again? Yep. It is. Yeah. Accurate. The idiot guy. Pretty much. I mean, she is 100% correct on that one. Uh, what isn't correct though. How do you like that segue? Hey. There's a visual in, I think that tornado tyrant story of, a giant jellyfish getting dropped dropped on someone, which was simultaneously cool, but also it was being termed as a man of war, a uh, Portuguese man of war, and it was not. It didn't have the crest. And as someone who is based on the Pacific coast and has been around men of wars, no, that's not what they look like. As a jellyfish fan myself, <laughs> I, I, I can s- definitely tell you. <laughs> I think my sister was stung by one at one point. Like, not... Not bad, but it certainly hurt. Uh, but yeah, like it, it's very strange seeing animals drawn incorrectly because we take that knowledge of what animals look like and behave like so much for granted now. And I guess that was not as much the case back then. Hmm. Uh, this was a dumb thing. Um, it's one of the bits where Green Lantern is teleporting... Green Lantern is teleporting the evil t- uh, tornado guy into the antimatter universe, uh, and that's resolving that fight. And I would have been fine with that, but it was specifically everybody needs to hit him with just the right amount of energy, and that will be the thing that sends uh, that tornado dude into the antimatter universe. And that just that just bugged me. It's like if we all punch him just right he will be knocked through the dimensional barrier. And it's just like, no, that's, I, I personally was not a fan of that. Hmm. Uh, I would have been, I would have been fine if it was just Green Lantern teleporting him into the antimatter universe. But Murph, Murph. One thing that we see here that we've talked about a little bit in past episodes as well, we're really seeing the just for the cover plots. And, because these are full-length stories, instead of being uh, 12-pagers or 6-pagers, like it's not the entire story is focused around the cover. Uh, it definitely felt like when we had 6- or 12-page stories, like those really were either completely manufactured, where it's just like, okay, one page, and it's just this is the thing that justifies the cover, or it was the entire story. Uh, here they've got the space where it can be like a mid-story swerve 
that matches the cover but it really is a swerve it's rare that the covers feel a not just appropriate but but like they gel with the story there's a bit in uh issue 18 the cover is the atom is super tall is regular height and everyone else is very small and trying to get his attention in various ways by like punching his feet and stuff uh and there's an absolute throwaway bit in the st- in the story itself that actually pulls that in. Basically, just the atom didn't shrink at first, and they were stuck on a table trying to get his attention, and then they kept shrinking, and eventually the atom was like, oh, I wonder if that's what's going on. I should shrink and investigate. And then by the start of chapter two in that story they're all together and they're all the same size. Uh, It's like the first panel is him rejoining them. It's it's utterly inconsequential. It only exists for the cover. And it's very weird to have these like mid story swerves. Yeah. And then eventually we'll start to get covers that have absolutely nothing to do with what happens in the book. Oh boy. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, we had those to start with, to be honest, but yeah. Um, I do also want to call out like, once upon a time, we gave some writer shit for calling, it might have been a Gardner Fox thing, actually, calling uh, Wonder Woman good girl, like having a character yeah. say that. And it was Martian Manhunter calling her that. Yep. And we get that stuff again. Not a ton, but there were two different times. It was just like, this, I didn't need this, and it's back. Yeah. No one asked for you to belittle the character who can do more than you. Yep. <laughs> This was this was dumb and funny. I, there was a point where Green Land Green Arrow used uh, rocket engine arrows, like fire an arrow into a thing, and then a rocket on it like starts up so that it pushes a thing in a direction. Yeah, just, for whatever reason, I just like that. It's not a rocket propelled arrow. It's an arrow, or it's an arrow propelled rocket. One thing we haven't mentioned in a while is. Snapper Carr is still talking like maybe not a 50s beatnik anymore, but definitely like that kind of Hepcat kind of situation. He is yeah. he is down with the cool kids. And the specific word that he used that I had to look up was ginchiest. Yeah. And like from a definitional standpoint, it turns out it's just specific it's being cool in a way that people admire you for, but I I went down a little bit of the Wikipedia rabbit hole on this one because uh, Ginchiest was popularized by Ed Burns, uh, who is not the Ed. There's someone in comics with a similar name, not him. Uh, this is an actor in his role as Cookie on the show 77 Sunset Strip, which was apparently absolutely huge from 1958 through 1964. From the way that Wikipedia talks about it, Cookie was like a proto Fonzie. And hmm. his vernacular shaped the way a lot of people thought of 50s hipster slang. Interesting. Yeah. I wonder if Gardner Fox writes Snapper Carr the same way that Stan Lee writes teenagers <laughs> without having a fucking clue what they sound like. <laughs> you know what? Probably. Uh, honestly, it wouldn't amaze me if like all the stuff he's pulling from is from other fictional depictions. I want to call out like... If you take away 
where the story eventually goes. I really like the giant silent robot in issue 19, I think it is. Mm. Uh, He just shows up. He does not talk. He takes an action that everybody thinks is aggressive. And then it turns out, oh, there was this giant, like, natural disaster that was that happened and it lifted up a building while right before an earthquake started and then put it back down and ultimately it winds up being that it's part of the plan by the alien uh it absorbs the energy from the natural disasters blah 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 uh but just the idea of this completely unperturbed giant human looking thing that turns out to be a robot just shows up gets out takes no notice of you does a thing puts it back and moves on like i love that idea it's very 1950s like day the earth stood still sci-fi one of the things we spend a lot of time talking about uh the gimmicks that get used in stories the the fact that every encounter is a gimmick by and large uh mm-hmm. and it's it might be this a reused gimmick but it rarely feels like just oh we're just using our powers against each other in a predictable manner and then it's like see what happens from there it's almost always i have this cool thing how do you use your base powers to get past it but there's a point in one of the multiverse issues where I don't remember one of the villains just straight up throws a mace at black canary and she dodges it. Yeah. And there was a simplicity there that made me happy because then, then there was a gimmick shortly thereafter of uh, like he turns her to marble after she beats the crap out of him. But the simple moment of not nah, in this moment, it's just regular powers I, I was happy with that. Yeah, highlighting her exceptional humanness. Yeah, uh, there's that. But even beyond that, like, we rarely get the powers just as part of the utility of the character. It's a little bit grandiose. Put it this way, like, I can't imagine Wolverine in a, in a style of storytelling like this very well because his powers are, although very cool, fundamentally just this is just what I do. This, these are my passives. Um, so yeah, just having, having that little bit of normalcy was, I liked it. What wasn't normalcy though, uh, was Magno nuclear from, uh, the issue with queen B just, she pulls out a Magno nuclear rod and longtime listeners will remember that we, we're largely inspired to start this from Jane Miles explain the X-Men and one of the recurring themes there especially from the the silver age is and the early bronze age is magnetism can do anything and so having a magno nuclear rod just it made me happy in nostalgic ways and that's pretty much everything for me like we covered all the bits and pieces all right We'll move to recommendations. I am going to recommend... Um, first of all, go read my comic. Um, <laughs> Veritas comic. It's good. Dot com. 
Uh, we are ending issue five very soon. By the time this episode airs, it should be um, out. Uh, issue six should be starting, which will be great, which is the last issue in volume one. Um, but also for those of you who are interested in just interesting um, documentaries, the WWE made a documentary on their 24 series about Kofi Kingston, who is the first African-born man to win the WWE World Heavyweight Championship. And he is the current champion as of the recording of this podcast. It's a really interesting documentary uh, that is framed by him going back to Ghana during the year of return and talking about his his journey towards winning the championship and, you know, the discussions behind the scenes about whether or not he should win, how long he'd been working in the company. You know, he'd been there for 11 years and hadn't got a title shot once seeing guys who had came in after him, get the title. It's, it's very moving because there's also a lot of love shown to him by his tag team member, his tag team mates, I guess, uh, Xavier Woods and Big E. And it's just a, it's a really unique look at, and a very humble look at the journey that he took to get there and working so hard being an immigrant himself because he did grow up in Ghana for a time and then came to America and lived in Boston for a while, um, chasing after something that he wanted and having the support of a family and his friends and his wife. It's, it's, a, it's a great bit of uh, television and it's worth watching. So from my end... Uh I'm going to recommend Galaxy's Edge uh, if you get the chance to go to Disneyland specifically at night. Uh, So my girlfriend and I were able to go to Disneyland a week and a half ago. It was good. It was a very good time. Uh, Galaxy's Edge specifically, I found during the day that in part because of the lighting, the fact that you still had the sunlight uh, coming in, it wasn't it felt a little more reality intruding into the fantasy. Um, and it was still very cool walking around during the day, but it was an amped up uh, Renaissance fair in the sense that, you know, like it's, if you're walking around in a Ren fair, you're not, you're never forgetting the fact that you're in real life, uh, that it is a manufactured uh, simulation of the past. That being said, at night when the only lights in Galaxy's Edge are the ones that the the Imagineers had carefully selected uh, to show off the place, to not uh, to keep your attention focused on the part of the park itself instead of oh, there's all of this hemisphere above. It just took it to a whole nother level. I loved Galaxy's Edge at night, and I highly recommend it. Well, good. I'm glad. I have I have yet to go. I'm waiting for the right time, uh, but mm-hmm. I'm excited to go when I do. Um, okay. We have a lot of work ahead of us. Two years of comics to read per title, but we're going to do it. And I think in 1963, we do get Ooh. some new faces, i.e. Yes. Will Magnus and the Metal Men. So we might actually get a new debut while we're there. Uh, But in the meantime, we'll start off back. I wonder if we should start alphabetically. (laughs) I'm fine with that. Now that now that we we have quite the the catalog. Um, So that's I believe that would be with Adam Strange. Yeah. Yeah. Adam Adam Strange Strange comes before Adam. But until then, I hope you have a good rest of your week. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you all next time.
DC Detectives can be found on SoundCloud and iTunes. To stay in the know, check out our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Barry's actions on Earth 2 had created a ripple effect throughout the universe. Not only were the heroes hopping to the next dimension over, but so were the villains. The dominoes had started falling, and the contemporary DC universe as we know it was now in its infant stages. But we needed to see the forest for the trees, every aspect of it around us. So we hopped on a Zeta Beam and headed for Ran to get some cosmic perspective. <laughs>